You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, well, good morning, Midtown. I'm sure you didn't expect to hear that song this morning. Um, just, just to get you going a little bit. <laughs> Keeping it going. So, if I've not met you yet, my name's Justin, I'm an associate pastor here. We'd love to meet you afterwards. I'll be back at the back. Uh, definitely come say hello. Uh-oh. All good? All right. Mic back on? All right, now we're back. So, we are continuing our series called The Psalms of Summer, and we're kind of being a little bit clever with it, and we're naming uh, the, the titles of the sermons relate to a song. So, today we're going to talk about what you want, what you really, really want. All right, so thus the tie-in. Um, hopefully that will stick with you. That's part of the goal as well. And we're going to look at really one of my favorite psalms. Uh, you've probably heard me say before that I feel like there's a psalm for every occasion. There's psalms that really mean a lot to you in a certain part of your life, like just to hear Akiko share about Psalm 37 in this season. You can point back to it and say, you know, that was a psalm that really carried me through a certain time. And for me, this was a psalm that was really important to me that carried me through a difficult time. And it's actually a guy kind of telling his testimony of how he was going through a difficult time. And so I want to look at this psalm and kind of weave my story and his story together. I think it'll be fun for us just to examine what, what this psalm has to say about what we want, what we really, really want. All right? You're going to say, hear me say that a lot. Before we do that, I do want to make uh, two family announcements. One was, just to be sure if it wasn't clear, Akiko's not leaving Austin or Midtown. So that's the good news. So she's still going to be a part of our church. She's just leaving staff. And so we can pray for her that God provides a great work for her to stay in Austin, um, which we think he will. And then secondly, I wanted to make a little family announcement. And first, you hear us say it every week, right? So Josh said it just earlier that we're a family that has been loved and served by God. And as a family, uh, that's not just like a metaphor for us. Like we don't just kind of throw it up there to kind of make us feel good. Like we really believe it's true. We believe that it's biblically true. And then we not only believe that, we actually try to live it out and serve and love each other like a godly family would. And one of the things that godly families do is they're honest about how they're doing. And they ask questions about, you know, how are we doing? And they have honest conversations, and when they know that there's a problem to be identified, they work together to solve the problem. And so this morning, just real briefly at the start, I did want to give you just one small problem that we're facing as a family. And this is the coming up now at the end of July, so it's the 11th month of our 12-month uh, ministry year and fiscal year, which for us, that's uh, September to August, so we've got about five more weeks left in the fiscal year. And right now, we're about $13,000 behind in our budget. And so just wanted to make you aware of that and ask that you would prayerfully consider jumping in as family at Midtown. Now, if you're not part of Midtown, I see some visitors here. This is not anything that you need to respond to at all. This is for those of us who said this is like our home and this is our family. And I'd really ask you to consider giving something extra during these last five weeks. Um, I know that God's bailed us out of it years, years past. We were in a really similar spot last year, and God bailed us out through your giving. And so trust that that's going to happen again as we respond faithfully just as a family. We really just wanted to make you aware of it. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't normally talk about this on a Sunday morning, but we'll send an email with details, but we know sometimes emails get missed, so we wanted to take a time just this Sunday to at least make you aware. All right, family announcement over, and now we're going to take a second offering. Just, just joking. We're not going to take a second offering. But when you get bored during the sermon, which you probably will, you'll get bored at some point, you can give online through the app, uh, through the website, and so I give you permission when you start getting bored, just think about giving and, and helping us out, all right? So we are going to talk today through Psalm 73, and we're going to ask this question, and I'll ask it to you guys now. 
Like, what is it that you really want out of the Christian faith? Like, what do you want? What do you really, really want? Uh, maybe put a different way is, is what do you expect from God when you're walking with Him faithfully? That's a question that, you, that we kind of wrestle with trying to find an answer to, really for a couple reasons. One, because we don't ever really sit and, t- and try to like ponder our motives, like why are we following God or what are we wanting as we follow God? We don't really do that very often, so it's hard from that standpoint. But I think it's a hard question from a second standpoint is usually we can't really get to the bottom of our hearts until we're put in a situation that's like a fire. <laughs> and when we're in the fire, when we're in a trial, when we're stuck, what happens is the things that we think that we would answer that question, when we get under pressure, things boil to the surface and we get to see real clearly what our motives are. And our heart becomes more open in these times of trial to say, oh, now I see what I've really been expecting, what I've really been wanting. And sometimes, if you're like me, it ends up revealing some pretty poor motives, a pretty broken heart. And so that's what we're going to look at today in the psalm. And I want to make just one kind of statement at the start, just to, just to say, say something that I think is going to be true, is that all of you who are walking with Jesus particularly as you get further along in your faith, I believe you're going to come to some point in your life, if not multiple times, where you're really going to have to pause and consider your heart and your motive in following Him. Like there's going to be some circumstance, some trial, some situation that's going to boil to the top your motives. And how you would answer that question and put it on paper is one thing. Like you could have like a really good theologically sound, very godly answer to what you really want. But when you get stuck in that fire, things are going to surface and you're going to see where your real heart and motives lie. And that's going to be a great time because what you're going to do as you continue to press into God, He's going to purify those motives. And you're going to be honest about where you are. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm, in Psalm 73. So let me pray for us and we'll we'll look at Psalm 73. God, we ask that your word would do its work. You're the one that has to speak to hearts. And so use uh, my weak words, but, but use the meditations of everyone as they just think about these verses that we look at today to do your work in them, to speak to them, and to prepare us uh, for these times, whether we're in them right now or whether they will be to come, a time of testing that will reveal what we really want and then can purify us to want you more than other things. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start in Psalm 73, and we're actually just going to read the very first line, which says, Psalm 73, it says it's a psalm of Asaph. We're just going to stop there. So here, you guys are familiar with the psalms. You know, tons of them are written by David, but there's a few that are written by this guy, Asaph. And I think that one of the things that makes this psalm so powerful is to know a little bit more about his story. Because Asaph was actually like the chief worship leader under David. And so King David, at kind of the height of his his, uh, reign, one of the biggest things that he did was he actually brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. And he set up this tabernacle where there would be constant worship and prayer and offerings to God 24 hours a day. An incredible season in the, in the history of Israel. And this guy was the lead worship leader. You can read about it in, in First, or First Chronicles 16. I'll read here from it. It says that they brought the ark of God and they set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. They presented burnt offerings, fellowship offerings before God. After David finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and he gave them uh, bread cake of dates, cake of raisins, and each, to each Israelite man and woman. He appointed the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, to thank, to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and next to him were a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. <laughs> and they were the, the play, the lyres, the harps, and Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Je- Jehaziel 
where the priests were to blow the trumpets and regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. That day uh, that David first approached or appointed Asaph and his associates to give praise to the Lord in this manner, he charged them, saying, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known him among the nations, what he's done. Sing to him, sing praises to him. It says that David left Asaph and the associates before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly according to each day's requirements. Why do we look at all that? I find it to be really profound. When we get into his story, you have to know the context that this was a guy that was like the lead worship leader of all of Israel. Like this is a guy that met before the Lord every single day, leading others in worship, calling others to follow him. This was a godly guy that sought God's face, that was active daily in worshiping him. That's more profound because you see the thing that he's going to struggle with is going to be something that you might think, well, this shouldn't be something that the guy that does this every day struggles with, right? But it actually is, and I find that to make it actually more of a powerful uh, testimony. It really makes it more powerful for a couple reasons. One is that after serving God for a long time, I notice that we begin to expect things from him. And I get the feeling as we read this psalm that Asaph, who worshiped God daily for who knows how many years before he's writing this psalm, he starts to realize that somewhere along the way, his heart got turned and he started to expect things from God. And I've, sound, I've seen that to be true in many Christians' lives, in, in my own life too, that when we start following God at the first, we're just so grateful, we're responding to the way that God has loved us, and we're truly actually just living and serving Him in response to all that He's done for us. But it can happen that over the years, your service becomes to be just a duty, and you start operating out of just duty. And before you know it, instead of you operating out of joy for what God has done for you, you slowly start to think, now I'm expecting God to do things for me for the way that I've been serving Him. Can you feel that? Have you ever done that? It's definitely happened to me multiple times, and I'll tell you more about a specific story later. I think what happens as we start following God and loving Him in response to how much He has done for us, but over time, we end up following God, expecting Him to do stuff for us in response to how much we think that we've done for Him. And that's the place where we're going to find Asaph in Psalm 73. So here's how he starts in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he starts with a real truth statement. Verse 1 is like this overarching truth to the psalm. He's saying, like, this is the truth, that God is good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. Like, he really believes that following God, that God will bless him, that it's good to follow God. It's good to be pure of heart. It's good to try to be pure and walk holy with God. And he believes that God will bless it. But in this testimony, you're going to see he's so honest about a season of his life where he says, but as for me, I almost slipped. I almost lost my step. That There was a time in my life when this thing that I know to be true, it didn't feel like it was true. We don't know exactly when it was or what it was. I, I estimate that it must have just been a season of his life, a time of questioning where he was worshiping God daily, yet at the same time growing in his expectation for God to do something. And, and his particular way that he fell was that he started to envy the wicked. He starts to envy other people. This could happen any other way to us, and I don't know how it will happen in your lives when you get to that point where your motives are truly tested to discern what you really, really want. But in his case, it was because he started comparing himself to others and noticing what they were getting that he wasn't getting. In a very religious way, too. Can you feel a little bit of the religion that's in there? I picture Asaph saying, look at me, God. Like, I've been worshiping you. I see how you're prospering all those people. They never come to worship. They're not coming. 
They're not worshiping with me in the morning. I've been faithful. Why are they getting the rewards when I'm not getting them? You start to see a little bit of this envy that reveals a pretty dark heart in the way that Asaph had begun to think about his relationship with God and why he was serving him. He goes on to describe how he thought of other people he was comparing himself to in verse 4. He says of them, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. They callous hearts and iniquity. They have evil imaginations. Have, their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them, and they drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. See what he was looking? What he really wanted was what he was seeing that the other people were getting, the health and the wealth, and to live carefree. He's starting to see some of his heart and his motives actually be exposed. What does he really want? Is that what he wants? Health, wealth, to live carefree? He calls them violent. <laughs> they're full of malice. They're scoffing. They're arrogant, oppressing. They're mocking. As a side note, do you ever notice when you start to get in this kind of uh, trap of despair or depression or comparison with others, you like actually exaggerate the, the, their situations? Like it puts you in this place where you're thinking they've got things so much better where the truth probably wasn't that they had carefree lives, that they had perfectly carefree lives. They probably weren't even as evil as he was describing of them. But when you get caught in this mode of comparing yourself with others, you start to exaggerate things to fit the narrative that you want to have. And so now Asaph has whipped himself into quite a, a stir in his comparison with other people. And it finally surfaces, finally surfaces to him what his real motives were, and they're not going to be pretty. In the next verse, he says this, verse 13, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure, and have I washed my hands of innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. So here you see the clear motives. He's come to understand that the real place of his heart was what he really, really wanted was that he wanted health and wealth and to live carefree. He wanted them more than he wanted God. What he wanted from God was for God to bless him more than he actually just wanted God for the sake of God. And it surfaced. This worship leader, this guy that's leading others to worship God day after day after day. In fact, it says, I think what he's pointing to in verse 14, when it says, every morning brings new punishments. I'm sure that he's speaking about Every morning when I have to go do my religious duties, it feels like suffering. It doesn't feel like life. My heart's not there because my motives, God's revealing to him, his motives are impure. I love that this could happen to a guy like Asaph, <laughs> honestly, because I think it brings more power to the story that here's someone who worshiped God every day, yet he would have the season of his life where he says his foot almost slipped. I think back to a guy that was really instrumental in my life, a guy named Tom Nelson, a pastor in Denton who discipled me for a year, and we kind of followed him for years uh, before that and after that as well. And I mean, this guy was just like the perfect rock. But then I find out like a couple years later after I left his discipleship program that he went through like a huge season of depression that really radically changed his ministry. And a bunch of my friends who were actually part of his church said that when he came out of that period, he was like a completely different person in a good way because his heart was so soft. He was more sensitive and compassionate to other people where he had not been that way before. I think about someone like that, someone like Asaph, or I think of someone like myself. 
Um, this was a season in my life, like I said, that this psalm was very important. It was about a three-year period in my mid-20s. Um, I have a kind of a similar, a similar testimony to Asaph's in some ways, so maybe that's kind of why I identify with it a little bit. Uh, we don't know his faith journey, but I came to faith when I was 15 years old and was like super on fire, like high school Christian, going on mission trips, leading people to faith, leading Bible studies. Came to UT and was just on fire for God and started this prayer group that started getting all the different ministries at UT praying together. And the reason I feel like Asaph is I actually had a prayer meeting every morning at 7 a.m., every weekday morning for 15 years. So we had this group that became what we, now, what we now call Campus Renewal, but back then it was called the Praying Horns. Uh, Leslie joined me at some of those back in the days, uh, back before even Ignite started. And, and I felt like I could feel like Asaph, like, here I am, I'm serving you, God, every single morning. I'm worshiping, and I'm praying, and I'm praying with others all the time. Yet in the season, I found myself envying two types of people. That's why this was so powerful to me. The first, to be honest, was that I was envying ministries that were more successful than mine. I started noticing that other ministries would get more students involved, or they would, you know, tend to have a lot more favor, and they were, God just seemed to be using them in much more powerful ways than he was using me. And I just kept comparing myself to them over and over again, thinking, God, why won't you do this? And I felt like I was a little like Asaph too, because I was actually uh, pretty judgmental about it, because I would think, these guys aren't praying every morning at seven. They're not serious about their walk with the Lord. Why are you blessing them? Look at what I'm doing. Why won't you bless me? Why isn't our ministry growing? I found myself in this rut of comparison with these other ministries. Secondly, I found myself... uh, uh, really envious of my friends who were getting married. Probably in my mid-20s, I went to about 30 weddings. You know that season of your life where you like, can I just buy a tux and use the same one every time? Like, I was at all these weddings, and in the midst of trying to be happy for my friends, there were, there were seasons where I just wasn't as happy as I should be for them. And again, with my judgmental side, what I would do is I would think to them, because I knew a little bit about their stories, I was like, they're not as serious about the Lord as I am. Like, and I know some of their relationship, and I know that their relationship's been impure at different parts, and I felt like I tried to honor God with, with my relationships and had been in several and, and kept them very, very pure, yet they all ended in bad breakups, and so I'm questioning God, saying, God, why are you blessing the wicked and not blessing me for what I've been doing? Pretty dark, right? But that's why the psalm was so important to me, because I was in that same spot, in fact, I think probably the apex of it for me was going to the Passion Conference. If you guys are familiar with Passion Conferences, uh, back in 2000, they did the one-day event in Memphis. And I remember driving to one day where the whole conference is focused on, like, God is what we want. Like, that's our prime joy is God is who we're seeking, who we want. And I just remember driving there thinking, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> and in the songs where the, the Passion Conferences are just full of, like, hours of worship. And I remember being there and, and thinking, there's a few of these songs I can sing with integrity, but there's a few that I can't right now, so I'm just not going to sing them because I didn't feel like I could sing them with integrity. And for me, it was that drive home where I was like, man, I really need to get serious about this because God is exposing some pretty dark motives in my heart. And so I made a couple commitments. Uh, I you know, committed to get really involved in my church. I, I committed to um, journal. I probably journaled more than I ever had in my whole life during that period of time. I read more than I ever did in that period of life, my time. I continued to seek God and ask him to purify this wicked heart and motives and to change what I really, really wanted. I sought counseling and sought friends, and, and by God's grace, he lifted me through that, which I'll tell a little bit more. I tried to do what Asaph did, because what he does in the next verse is what I think God was calling me to do. In verse 15, he says, if I had spoken like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand it all, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. 
Then I understood their final destiny. What he's talking about there in that first verse, if I'd spoke like that, I would have betrayed your children. As a spiritual leader, he's actually wrestling right now. He's thinking, you know what? If these motives are in my heart, like I can't lead these people in worship with integrity. I'm afraid that I'm going to fall and lead these people astray. And so he's, he's so concerned over his heart condition because not only what it would mean for him, but what it would mean for the people whom he's leading to worship. He's broken over these motives, and he's pleading for God to change his heart and to purify what he really, really wanted. He even describes it this way, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Like, that's the way I felt in that period of my life. I, I wanted to discern and get to the heart of what was going on and what was so disturbed within me and why I was envying other people, and I just couldn't get to the bottom of it without a lot of help. And the way that I found that lot of help is what I think is described by what he says here, until I enter the sanctuary of God. Until I enter the sanctuary of God. Now, for him, that probably literally meant like he was going into the tabernacle each day to worship, but I think for us, we could take the same principle and say, when we're in this place, like I was or like you might be someday, when the motives of your heart get bubbled to the, so to the surface and you see that they're pretty ugly and you want to want God more than anything else, you go to the sanctuary, you get yourself into Christian community, you seek counseling, you put yourself before others and you spend time in God's word and you find a psalm that can be your psalm in that season. That's what it means to enter the sanctuary of God. It's so important that we take courage to address this. I think this is probably something that took Asaph a lot of courage, right? Like here he is, the worship leader, yet he's still got to confront the, the impurity of his heart and ask God to change him, but he's willing to do the hard work. And it, it's hard work to get through this. Um, don't hear what I'm not saying. So what I'm not saying is that just memorize a verse and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> I don't think that's what Asaph went through. I think that he went through a deep period of continually entering the sanctuary of God until God was able to purify his heart. I know for me, it took about a year and a half. It was a year and a half of counsel and help and community and walking really closely with my best friend, Doug, walking through all that together to see where my heart could change. And what happened in me was that after a, a long time of struggle, but it did happen eventually where I could honestly say when I looked at the other ministries, I was truly happy if they were more successful than I was. And I didn't care about my own success because I saw that God was the reward. And even if he didn't reward my ministry or answer any of my prayers, it didn't matter because he was the one that I wanted. And I could say that I honestly got to a spot too for the other category of people that I was envying, that, that I could be joyful at my friends' weddings and not be envious of them, that I could really want what is best for them because I knew that what I wanted more than marriage was I wanted God and he was the treasure, he was the reward. And that truly became my heart. I had to come to treat God more like an idol where I was thinking if I was going to do these certain things for God, then God was beholden to me to do things. And in this period, God purified my heart to where I responded again just joyfully to the gospel to say, no, I'm going to serve God because he's worthy for all that he's done for me and that's my motive in my heart. And he's my reward. That's eventually what uh, Asaph here realizes well. If you go to verse 18, he says, Surely, this is where he's getting what we'll call an eternal perspective. Surely you, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them uh, as fantasies. So the first thing that Asaph realizes is that there's life beyond this life. The things that he was envying and hoping for, he realizes there that this whole life is so mortal. There's something eternally valuable. 
And then he starts to change his mind and his heart when he begins to think about eternity and to start to live and focus attention on eternity rather than his circumstances at the time. Jesus talked a lot about this too, right? When he would, he would talk about eternity, he would say stuff like, do not store up for yourselves treasures on heaven and earth where, rot, where uh, moths and rust can destroy, but instead store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Or he would say, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life from me and for the sake of the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anyone do in exchange for their soul? I don't believe that Asaph was actually reflecting on their judgment and being happy. He wasn't saying, ha, they're going to they're gonna, you know, have an awful end. What he's doing is he's looking at their lives and saying, this stuff that, that they're pursuing is temporary. But with an eternal perspective, his heart starts to change because he believes that God has something more in store for him eternally. The first way that he changes his heart is by gaining an eternal perspective. The second thing that he does is he begins to really believe that God cares for him. In verse 21, he says it this way. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You'll guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you'll take me to your glory. See, he was able to look at the error of his ways and assess kind of how he was. In fact, he calls himself a beast, right? He says, when I was caught in this pattern, I was thinking like an animal. I wasn't thinking right thoughts. I was grieved. I was bittered. I was senseless. I was ignorant. He's recognizing that when he was in that state, he wasn't in his right mind because he didn't believe that God was with him. But what changed his heart, what started to change his motives was when he could proclaim, yet I'm always with you and you hold me by my right hand. You'll guide me with your counsel and afterward you'll take me to glory. So even when he was acting like this beast, God was present with him. And I think he's thinking back to his morning prayers and his times of leading people in worship that had begun to feel more like suffering to him. And he's going to those times of prayer and he's realizing that God was with him, that it wasn't God that had moved away in this period of silence, that God was always there. In fact, it says that you hold me by your right hand. You're always with me. When he comes to believe that there's a God that cares for him in the midst of what he's doing and form that conviction, his perspective changes. His motives get purified because he believes that God is with him and God cares for him. Not only that, he promised that he would guide him meaning that in this period that I'm walking through right now, I trust that God is with me and he's going to guide me through it. And ultimately, he's going to take me completely out of it by bringing me to glory. Again, that eternal perspective. I know for me, one of the things that was the biggest uh, impact for me was to actually believe that God was with me in my suffering. I didn't, I didn't actually need God to solve it. Like I knew that if he gave me a wife, which he did, I'm thankful for that. I'm very thankful. Changed my whole life. But if he did that, or if he made my ministry prosper and everything was great, that wasn't going to satisfy me. What was really going to satisfy me was just being with him. In the midst of success or failure in the ministry or whatever kind of relationship God granted me, what mattered was that God was with me. And it wasn't that I really wanted him to fix my problem or answer my prayers. What I wanted to know was that he was with me. And I finally came to a deep conviction that God is with me. And I think Asaph realized that too, that he believed that God was with him in his suffering. He was going to hold him and counsel him and take him through it. And that started to change his perspective. Now we get to the proclaiming verse of Psalm 73. In verse 25, he says, God is who he wants. Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Asaph finally got to the point where he could say with his true heart of hearts that his motives, what he really, really wanted, 
was he wanted God. He looks at this earth and all the other things he was envying and the things that people had and says, this is nothing compared to God. I want God more than any of these other things that I had been wanting. I think he looks back at his ministry and his time in the tabernacle and he he changes his heart to say, now that I'm doing this, I'm not doing these times of worship to try to get God's favor for him to do things for me. I'm coming to the place of worship because God is who I want. He's the one that I'm coming to meet with. And I don't care if the ministry happens. I don't care if people follow me. I'm coming to worship God in the tabernacle this morning because God is there and he's the one that I want. Even when he thinks in light of eternity, I don't think he's thinking just about, I can't wait to be an eternal life that he promises just so I can be free of pain. What he's thinking about in eternity is eternity means eternity with God because eternity without God is worthless. Asaph doesn't want that. He wants eternity because eternity means eternity with God. He wants God more than anything else. And his heart begins to change. Let me just ask you, is this what you really, really want from the Christian life? Do you want stuff from God or do you actually want God himself? Like I said at the start, it's a really hard question to answer and we can all put things on paper and write a good theological answer to that. But I'm going to tell you that there's going to be a time in your life where something's going to happen and these motives are going to get bubbled to the surface. And when they do, You just need to go back to enter the sanctuary of God. When you enter the sanctuary of God and you put yourself in community with others and you walk with others to help you gain the right perspective, you'll start to see things with an eternal perspective. You'll begin to believe that God is there with you in your pain. You'll begin to say, you know what I want more than anything else? I want God more than anything else. Like that's what Asaph discovers and he, he closes the psalm with really some proclamations of those same three things. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, he's saying, like, you can come to expect that my flesh and my heart are going to fail. Like, I'm going to have these periods of, of stress, these periods of trial, but God is with me. God is the strength of my heart. He'll see me through it. In verse 27, those who are far from you will perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Again, he's reflecting on his eternal perspective that that there is a path that leads to destruction. He doesn't want to get on the path of envying those things because those things lead to destructions. He wants to pursue the things that will last for eternity. And finally, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So what's good? Everything's bubbled to the surface and now Esau can say confidently, like God is what I want. What is good? is actually to be near God. That's what I want to do. That's why I'm going to come to the tabernacle and worship, and I'm going to tell other people about his good deeds. Like, God is who I really want. May God give us the perspective to want him more than anything else. May God do that among us. We're going to close in some time of worship where we're actually going to get to proclaim that. I'm really excited about the songs that we're going to sing because we're going to talk to God about how he is, who we really really want, that he's worthy of all of our focus, all of our attention, and all the things on earth, nothing on earth do I desire besides God. Let's sing that together. We're going to do that after we take communion or while we take communion. And when we take communion, I really want us to go back to that thought that I mentioned at the start, that one of the things that can happen as you grow in your Christian life, if you're not careful, it doesn't have to happen, but but you can start to, instead of doing things in response to how God has loved you, just do all of your service and all of your your, your connection with God based on what he's done for you, you can slowly become to reverse that 
And now you think God's beholden to you and you're doing these things so that you can get stuff from God. And one of the reasons that we take communion is to have a time every week to pause and flip that on its head and be reminded again that we don't do things to try to get stuff from God. We don't have Him at our beck and call. No, we do things joyfully in response to how He has loved us. And that's why Jesus would tell His disciples on that night that He died that they should do this in remembrance of Him because He knows we need this constant reminder that what we want our heart to be motivated by is by God's love for us so that we can say that we're a family loved and served by God and compelled to love and serve each other in Austin with God. Like it's his love that's going to compel us. So as we take communion, reflect on that and let your heart be attuned again that God loves you and that you're going to live your life and your service of him is going to be in response to how he's loved you. Let's pray and let's enjoy a great time of worship and telling God that he's who we really want. Ask God that you would just be very, very present in our worship right now. Like we, we want these truths to, to sink into our hearts, and we can read them from a psalm and reflect on them together through this teaching. Uh, but another powerful way is to sing them over each other and proclaim that you're who we want. As we do that, make that true of us. Pray that you would bring our, our motives to the surface that we could be honest with them and wrestle in the way that Asaph did, that we would not run from you, but we would enter your sanctuary in all of these times to gain your perspective, to see things eternally, to know that you're with us and that you are the treasure that we want. Lead us as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.